This afternoon I'd like to uh, share with you some reflections on the fruit of these seven stages of purification, these, uh, these char chariots that carry us onward. And before I, I do that, I, I guess I want to share a little bit about just the nature of this Dharma talk. I was thinking this would have been such a good thing to, to say in the beginning, you know, my very first talk, but now you get it in my very last talk. <laughs> is is kind of one of the intentions be, uh, behind what I'm sharing with you and how I'm sharing this with you. And, and sometimes when I share, what comes to mind is this word for Dharma talk in... in in the Zen tradition, uh, Taisho, when a Zen master gives a Taisho. And the translation of that word that was given to me when I was a monk, might be different for, for other people, I'm, I'm curious about this, was that a Taisho is a celebration. It's really a time to celebrate. And when I was a monk and I heard that, I, I found it really helpful, the sense that, that um, sometimes when I go into a Dharma talk, it's not about learning anything new or maybe even anything transformative, but maybe just a time to celebrate. Or maybe a better word for tonight is to honor, to celebrate and honor. And in particular, it's honoring and celebrating this quality of heart that I, that I feel is a, a fruit of this unfolding, the, the quality of compassion. To really see, you know, as I've been emphasizing uh, most days, you know, uh, to begin by uh, leading with the heart and then to see that, that the fruit of this practice is to continue with the heart. I'd like to begin with a, a story that exemplifies the arising of this and how important it is. And it's about uh, James Baldwin, the, the, the famous African-American writer and novelist and essayist. And this happened in 1957. In 1957, he was living in, in Paris and was reading a, a newspaper and he'd been living in, in France and Paris for nearly 10 years. And mostly that was as a result of really the experience of racism that he had in this country and decided to, to go live in, in Paris. And in the newspaper, what he saw was an image. It was an image of a, a, a photo. A photo of Dorothy Counts, a young black woman, 15 years old. And in the, the photo was Dorothy Counts. Here she was. She was walking to her new integrated school in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it was being surrounded, being taunted, and spit upon by youths white use on her way to the school in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And as he saw that photo, that image, he said, this is what arose in him. He said, he said, and it made me ashamed. 
and he thought to himself when he saw the photo, some one of us should have been there for her. And it was at that point that he realized he needed to return to the United States. And he said that, that his sense was everybody else was paying their dues and it was time I went home and paid mine. And it was at that moment that he came back to the United States to help with the civil rights movement. How do you pay your dues? How do you engage in this quality of pain or dues? I think when the when the heart is is not as encumbered by reactivity, by greed, hatred, and delusion, when it rests using the, the language that Gil was sharing with us yesterday afternoon, it rests in a quality of non-harming in ahimsa. And when there's this truly touching suffering, whether it be the suffering in our family or in our communities or even our own suffering. that suffering, it pulls us to pay our dues. To me, that's the movement of compassion, the movement of a heart that's touching suffering. Rather than living in some foreign world, it's to heed that call. And to notice that it's heeding that call both internally and externally. And so much of the way I see retreat is it's simply gaining skill in, in heeding that call and seeing that so much of what we're doing here is the essence of that, of that heeding that call. Right? It fits so well with this path, this, this path of seeing suffering and the end of suffering, both internally and externally. Now, I, I want to point out for me, this is, this is a fruit of the, the path. You know, this purification by knowledge and vision, this, this last chariot or the last horse, depending upon what simile you're using. It talks about magapala, and, and Gil introduced us to these terms. Maga, path, in the, in, in the sense of, again, a kind of shedding, but a, a, a real deep kind of shedding of a release of some kind of flavor. Whether it be a, a small movement towards that more, that movement towards non-harming, or a greater movement of that. And Pala, the, the afterglow of that release. 
I think that's one way to see that, that what comes from that release is then the heart is ready. It's they're ready for, for compassion. What a beautiful fruit. And I do want to acknowledge the way I'm using these terms, Magapala, and the way I'm, I'm sharing with you about the fruit or the fruits of this practice. It is not a Mahasi perspective. <laughs> Maybe more a poetic perspective. As I said, you know, some people hear the scientific Buddha when they read the suttas or they, they hear a Buddha that was so brilliant in terms of psychology. And for me, for some reason, I always hear a poetic Buddha. I just keep on hearing them in there. The closer and closer I read. And I remember something about the poetic. One, one person said, he said, poets are almost always wrong about facts. <laughs> That's because they're not really interested in facts only in truth. So this is to let you know that probably many of the facts in all of my talks are <laughs> quite off, but maybe, maybe there's a little bit of truth <laughs> that we can touch together in this, in this Teisho, in this celebration, in this honoring. And we hear we hear this uh, in the the Buddha in the discourses when he's speaking about speaking to his monastics that have really uh, gained the path in a very complete way a, 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 a big taste of awakening and he encourages them he he, he says you know wander forth O bhikkhus for the welfare of the multitude for the happiness of the multitude out of compassion for the world, for the good and welfare and happiness of devas and humans. Let, let, let not two go the same way. And when I reflect on that, I notice and realize that this heart of compassion, this, this pull to pay our dues in a skillful way, this quality of compassion is, is why we're practicing here today. Right? It's carried the Dharma to us over all of these centuries. It's that quality of heart to honor. And what I want to point out about this, which is really important, is that that this all qualities, that this 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 um, encouragement to pay one's dues, is that it begins with a quality of mind. That this this is where this path begins, you know. Just as we see the beginning of the Dhammapada, beginning with that that famous quote, you know, that mind is the forerunner of all things, and if it's the forerunner of all things, that's what needs to be purified, needs to be cultivated in a in a way. And I think as a result of that, we're given a different image of compassion. And I want to contrast this with two images, two actually two very moving, emotionally moving images of compassion that I feel inspired by both. One, again, is the, the image of that statue downstairs of Kuan Yin. Isn't that an interesting image of compassion? Do you notice how relaxed 
yet open and stable her posture is. It's really quite striking that that, that is embodying compassion somehow. Whereas the, the, one of the images that I grew up with of, of compassion comes from the Christian tradition of the Good Samaritan, which again is another moving image, but it, it is the image of, of compassion in action. Whereas the image of Kuan Yin begins somewhere else, else which is a, a kind of embodiment, not as a way of excluding the image of the Good Samaritan lifting that person back onto their, to their donkey. So we're here to begin in a different place. And I think this is so important. Because what I notice is if, if this heart is moved by unskillful qualities, then this isn't a genuine movement of the heart towards compassion. And I'll get into these, you can see these, these um, what are called again, these near enemies of compassion that we can confuse, confuse for the real thing. And for me, I think this is why retreat practice is so sacred and so important because I passionately feel that it transforms the world that we live in by changing hearts, but allowing something else to emerge in this world. And it's just as I mentioned at the beginning of this retreat, I feel like it's in especially important given the dominant culture that we're surrounded by. A dominant culture where there can be such an emphasis on individualism. Which I'm not saying is necessarily bad in and of itself, but it has a shadow side that percolates into our communities and our, in our practice, which is this shadow side of narcissism. And as I again shared with you, and, and uh, Gil shared, shared with you uh, a similar quote, that, that the, the, the most refined practitioner, the highest practitioner, is one who practices for oneself and for others, not just for oneself, and also not just for others, both for oneself and, one other, and for others. It's also what comes to mind is, is I, I do want to point out that this quality of compassion and practicing for oneself and, and others really does flower later on in Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, in particular, you hear the echoes of this in uh, this Indian practitioner Shantideva, you know, uh, in this, this essay, um, A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, which supposedly is the Dalai Lama's favorite text. <laughs> and I want to share with you just a little bit of the language that he offers around this quality of compassion. More, more 
for the reason I, I want to share it is one is it can be quite moving, but also to juxtapose it with this text because I think it also clarifies retreat practice. So in, in the second chapter, he's talking about the spirit of awakening and what, what, what impels it forward. And this is his aspiration, which I do want to say is quite over the top, but I like poetry. I like over the top. <laughs> he says, may I be, be the protector for those who are without protectors, a guide for travelers and a boat, a bridge and a ship for those who wish to cross over. May I be a lamp for those who seek light, a bed for those who seek rest, and may I be a servant for all beings who desire a servant. To all sentient beings, may I be a wish-fulfilling gem, a vase of good fortune, an efficacious mantra, a great medication, a wish-fulfilling tree, and a wish-granting cow. So may I be in various ways a source of life for the sentient beings present throughout space until they are all liberated. What an aspiration of compassion. And quite a huge vision of, of what fuels practice. But I, I want to point out a little bit about how Shantideva holds this, because I think it's important for us too. Two things. Afterwards, a chapter later or, or, or two, he, he reflects and he thinks to himself, paraphrasing here, what the hell was I thinking <laughs> making this kind of aspiration? <laughs> What's up with this? Which I thought was a good, <laughs> good response. And he said, oh yeah, to, to basically to aim high, but to, to start low, to start with the simple things. The example he goes, just to give vegetables to those who need vegetables. And I find this so uh, helpful on, on retreat to have this aspiration of compassion, but to see that it's just this moment after moment of noticing what's going on, having a softening around what's going on, not getting lost in some kind of grandiosity, but this aspiration of the heart. And at the same time to remember that the, the Bodhicharya Vitara, this text, it's a meditation manual which again, to me, speaks to the image that's downstairs of Kuan Yin, that it begins with a quality of, of, of mind and body, a quality of heart. That's where we begin. So what is this compassion? The One of the Pali words, karuna, basically means compassion, which is this the sense that that's the seeing the suffering in others' lives or our own life or our own experience and caring. And what's intertwined in that quality of caring is to 
wish of freedom from that suffering. Another Pali word that's used um, is, is from the passage that I shared with you of uh, bhikkhus, go forth, out of compassion for the multitude. And the word there used is a, is a very interesting word, which I think fits, it's the word I remember around com compassion, which is this um, anokampa. And it comes, the second part of it, kampa comes from kampati, which means to shake or tremble to skillfully shake or tremble with suffering, to be moved by it. It's, it's that quivering of the heart in response to suffering, which leads to this impulse to care. So what is, what is compassion not? What are the things that compassion is not, which I think is important to go over because there's so many things that I can be confused with. Again, using this definition scheme that we find in this commentary, the Vasudhimaga, the far enemy being the opposite of compassion, it's the clear one, it's cruelty. But it's the, the near enemies that I, I find it's so helpful to, to be aware of, especially on retreat. And to me, there's, there's two different ones, is the way I divide it up. One is said to be uh, despair. It's that sense of being overwhelmed by suffering, the kind of too muchness. So I want to point out this is not compassion. Being overwhelmed by suffering is not compassion. It can feel like it because because the heart is being really it's quivering with suffering, but too much. There's not this essential quality that that I spoke about last time. This this quality of equanimity, which is so important, which again I pointed to that image downstairs of Kuan Yin, that she embodies a kind of compassion that is also infused with equanimity. But the other near enemy you could say is, is the other extreme of that, the quality of pity. Pity in the sense of looking down upon someone else, up above them and looking down upon their suffering is again not compassion, the heart not quivering not close to experience. The image that I remember for myself to remind myself of these near enemies and how compassion is different is the image of uh, St. Francis of Assisi. And it's, I think it's, it's the story of his great conversion where he's riding along upon a horse. He comes from a very wealthy family. And as he's riding along uh, upon a horse, he comes across a leper. And it's that moment of being moved by the suffering of the other that he gets up off of his horse down on the same level as the leper and kisses the wounds of the leper.
to come into contact with suffering, to be moved by it but not overwhelmed. To me, so much of this practice is just an expression of that image, of that quality. Touching experience, not being overwhelmed by it, but being in contact with it, with equanimity. It's just that, whether it be an ache in the knee, an emotion, the mind lost in thought, a sound or a sight, just to be with it, to notice in an opened kind of way. And I think when there's momentum, it, it can have that flavor, that flavor of a heart that is softening around the suffering. What comes to mind for me is last night, so last night, I don't know if anybody has experienced this on retreat. Have you ever, in the middle of the night, awoken by some part of your life that you're hoping wasn't gonna be on retreat? <laughs> <laughs> there it was. I was gonna deal with that after the retreat. There it was, it must have been, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning. It seems like those early numbers of the, of the night is when it visits me. And, and there it was, uh, suffering, my suffering. And just what was so important in those moments was a turning for me, a turning towards it and to acknowledge this is difficult. And that acknowledgement was wrapped up in the simple noticing of what this was. Oh, worry. Oh, here it is, worry. Worry feels just like this. And do you hear as I'm saying that the, the crossover here, that, that phrase, a worry feels just like this, is the expression of mindfulness. But it also can be the expression of compassion, of, of a heart that's softening around experience and noticing it for what it is. Not the story, but the direct experience of it. Worry feels like this. It feels like this stirring in my stomach around my diaphragm. Ah, here it is. I want to say a little bit more about how there is this intertwining of this practice and compassion, how I feel that doing this practice, if framed correctly, creates a heart that's full of compassion. And the, one of the reasons is because I feel like what we're doing here, one frame for what we're doing here, is it's about cultivating capacity. Cultivating the capacity to be with experience. to be with experience so that the heart is not overwhelmed by it, but it's also not separating from it. And this, 
I think also speaks to a yet another flavor of, you could say, a near enemy of compassion that uh, Jogyam Trungpa, the Tibetan teacher, called idiot compassion. And it was described as this, in a general sense, it's what's called enabling. It's the general tendency to give people what they want because you can't bear to see them suffering. Basically, you're not giving them what they need. You're trying to get away from your feeling of, I can't bear to see them suffering. That's not compassion. That's being overwhelmed by suffering and trying to get rid of it so I don't have to feel it. And have you noticed, at least I've noticed this in my life, when an action comes out of that place, there's not a lot of compassion. I just don't want to feel anymore. And here we get to be on this retreat where there can be a cultivating of a, a capacity to be with those difficult times. And I also notice in this heart that a lack of capacity is not only those experiences of overwhelm, but sometimes it's the reactivity. It's the arising of anger or depression or denial because the heart and mind can't allow the suffering in, the hurt in. Again, James Baldwin puts this so well when he says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with the pain. The heart can brace against experience in this way to, to reside maybe more in hate or anger and then to find underneath, wow, there's so much pain and hurt. And oh, and this is where the compassion is needed. This is what needs to be noticed is this flavor, this layer. So cultivating this capacity. And again, this is why I, I wanted to emphasize in my talk, last talk so much, the noticing of any kind of okayness within our experience. To really start to feed and nourish that quality of equanimity that might be there. Because it's what balances it, what gives compassion its capacity. And I want to be clear, sometimes when I hear myself give talks, I um, there's almost like on the edge of regret in the sense of like giving you the wrong message here because it can feel so kind of neat and orderly. <laughs> I wish the way I give talks was maybe messier so you'd get this impression of how messy it can be. <laughs> so I, I feel like I'm, just so you know, that I'm always leading you down a wrong road at times and you have to be aware of me.
other than the times where I'm not, where I'm, where I'm making it sound unclear, then you can think, oh, that's as good. Brian's doing a really good job. It's sounding unclear. <laughs> this, is a, this is a good, this is a good Tasha. This is a good Dharma talk. And, and the reason I, I mention this, because for me, the, the cultivation of compassion, the really nourishment of the fruit of this, of this path has been such a messy journey. And I've had to come to realize that I go through phases. This heart goes through phases of sometimes just being overwhelmed, whether it be on retreats or in life. I wish I could tell you a different story, but it's not. This, this heart gets overwhelmed by its own suffering and the suffering of the world. It's one of the reasons I practice, because I can't skillfully pay my dues when the heart's overwhelmed, and I want to. And then my job is just to be with that. And I want to share some specifics around this, especially for retreat, because there are times, hopefully you've noticed this, where mindfulness gets overwhelmed. Has mindfulness gotten overwhelmed during this retreat for you? Or maybe not. <laughs> so maybe a couple people. <laughs> And it's when I have to do something other than simply be with my experience. This is important because so many teachers, teachers like me, they just harp on and on about being with your experience. <laughs> and there are times where I have to remember that sometimes it's better not to be with my experience or to be with my experience with a sideways glance. And I want to give some specifics around this. from the subtle to the more extreme. And it fits in within this, this range of, of asking this question, maybe not verbally, but asking this question within my practice of how can I be with this? And it's the range from simply noticing the arising and falling of the abdomen as you breathe in and out don't even need to know, and there's a quality of being with that experience, or with an emotion, or an ache in the knee. Don't even need to label it. There's just presence there, mindfulness. Weaker mindfulness, oh, I need to note it. Oh, this is anger. Oh, this is, this is the feeling of the abdomen rising. Oh, rising, falling. I need to label that some because the mind isn't really connecting with that. That's how I need to be with this. I need to come back to noting. You know, when the mind is really lost in thought when I'm sitting, sometimes just opening the eyes because there's such a momentum to the mind, that train, that freight train going. I need to be with it by cutting it, by bringing the attention elsewhere to step out of that. Oh, this is what's needed. Sometimes looking around a little bit, getting the head and neck moving, uh, and then coming back in. Oh, here, here's the, f the, the excitement of planning. Oh, it feels like this. And then I can start to feel it in the body and there I am back again. Other times it can feel like it's not only a freight train during the sit, it feels like it's during the walking meditation. It feels like it's <laughs> the whole day of retreat. And sometimes that's when I need to vary the rhythm of the retreat. Where it, for me, it's walking, doing more walking meditation outside, having more of a quality of spaciousness. The attention is sometimes even more outward in hearing and seeing, and then touching in at times into the body. 
a whole host of different ways of of being with to not being with so that there's more space around it. And again, this could be a talk in and of itself, but I want to acknowledge the nuance of this art of, of noticing our experience. And again, uh, a reminder that sometimes one of the things that I bring in to my practice is the active practice of self-compassion so that it softens the heart. And sometimes because it's the gateway to equanimity, because it brings a quality of patience with the process that this mind and body are going through. For example, one story about this, I, I did a month-long retreat and it was a loving-kindness retreat. And um, it's a great retreat. And I remember I was going through all the different phases of individuals and I was doing the difficult person or the difficult people. And I was working with some, some people in a community that there was some challenge around. It felt good. I felt like my heart was open. There was a lot of love and so much capacity for the challenges. And I got back off retreat and there was a situation in this community that it exploded while I was gone. And for some reason, people were calling me about it, which is a little bit of a track. Like, why are you calling me? Like, not that I know what to do with it. But the mind was so hooked. It was so bummed out about this. And there were some situations that I was like, oh, this shouldn't have happened. And so there, there I was, of course, judging myself here. Brian, you've done a month of loving kindness, and here you are irritated with people. And uh, mindfulness wasn't working so well. And it was this combination of the willingness to continue to sit every day on the cushion with this, this quality of just noticing and with, that was filled with, with compassion of, oh, the mind's hooked. Oh, interesting. That's, that's the way it is right now. Oh, I care about this. Oh, and it feels like this. And that infusion of compassion allowed for a patience that it gave me time just to be with that. And what the wisdom that arose with this, and luckily I had some time, which was, Brian, you don't have to respond to this right now. And I think I waited about two weeks before engaging in this conflict to see that, oh, it just needed the patience and the quality of equanimity that was within the compassion to get to a point where there was more clarity of mind to learn it, to, to know how to respond. Two more pieces of, of the things that this opens up in our practice and in our lives. 
with doing this practice, especially this, this emphasis on direct experience, touching experience, stepping out of the, these concepts, these larger concepts that can delude us, that there can be this opening to the other in our lives, the other people in our lives and that suffering in an intimate way, in an opening to ourselves. And I'd like to share with you a, a poem that, that gets at this in a different direction. It's a kind of reflection, but I think it leads in the same direction of touching people as they are. So a different route, but similar. It's a, a poem by Ellen Bass, entitled, If You Knew. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt they just had lunch and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked a half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are? Soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless pinned against time. To see in this way to come back again to one of these chariots of really seeing and permanence to, 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 to embody that. To see it within our direct experience and in, in, in front of us. And what a beautiful expression of people soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless 
pinned against time. I think often, and I think I'm one of these teachers, there are these images or these aspirations of being this individual or this person who's filled with compassion, which I think is a beautiful aspiration, but there might be broader aspirations, which is this aspiration to have communities that are filled with compassion. Another way of imagining and understanding what we're doing here. Just like IRC here, to me, one of the beautiful things about coming here is to me, it's a kind of field, it's a field of generosity. And you can say, oh, there's so many generous people, but what makes this place, at least for me, so powerful is that, it, that it's, it's a community of generosity. And I like to, to bask in that, that field of generosity. I think it's one of the things that, that continues to move our practice forward when we're here on retreat. I think that kind of feeling is why we have the, the same kind of frame in, in Flagstaff to offer everything freely, the retreats that we offer, the classes, the Monday nights to really create a field of that. What would it be like to have that kind of aspiration? You know, there's a beautiful example of this that happened in the 1940s. It was the, in France, the, the village of La Chabonne, sur Lignon. And it was interesting that it was this expression of compassion that was embodied by an entire village and a few surrounding villages where there was this this concerted um, and coordinated effort to hide hide the Jews during the the during uh, World War two mostly children and uh, often what would happen is is um, as as the forces would come in they would have the the children flee into the forest and hide there, and then they, they would actually sing a certain song to let them know the danger had passed. And there was a passageway to, to Switzerland to, to save many of them. They say between three to 5,000 lives were saved by the, uh, these villages were inhabited by the Huguenots, who I think many even know were Protestants and had, had really centuries of, of um, oppression by the Catholic Church. It's because they deeply understood suffering. Moved, they were simply paying their dues in this beautiful way. So may our practice here together they lead to to this to these communities of compassion that lead to the liberation of all beings. <laughs>